0: Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. You can learn more about our church by visiting cornerstonetulsa.org. There you can read all about our journey through the year of the Bible. We gather every Sunday morning at 930 and 11 o'clock, and we'd love for you to join us. If we can help you in any way, you can reach us at hello at cornerstonetulsa.org. With that, let's hop into today's teaching.
1: This is a teaching from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing an ephod, linen ephod. Each year, his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife saying, may the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home and the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Let us pray. Dear Lord, I would pray that the church would hear these words today and would respond and be united in God's Word. Uh, let the words of your um, scriptures uh, fall on the hearts of us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thanks,
0: Susan. All right. I met with a mentor this week, and he asked me, Do you think that the people in your pews think that the world is more complex than it was five years ago? And I think, I said, I don't know if it is more complex than it was five years ago, but it definitely feels more complex than it was five years ago. You think about it, different spheres of our society at the level of government, um, it feels like there's a level of vitriol and, and hatred and anger that perhaps is unprecedented but it certainly feels this is different than it has been before. Uh, People on the left and on the right think the other side is at best an idiot and at worst evil. Uh, There's a lot of uh, name-calling battle lines are drawn. It feels very heated. Even in the church, we think about how people view the church uh, on a big scale that there's, there's high mistrust. The Catholic Church has been through a lot in recent years with just terrible, shameful uh, abuse that has gone on, and, and maybe even more awful uh, than, than the abuse itself is the cover-up efforts. Uh, the people who have known at high levels of church leadership what has gone on yet have covered it up to preserve the face, and, and in trying to keep it secret and not expose it and, and bring about justice, have made it all the more shameful. And So many people are victims and have walked away from the church as a result of that, which is just which is heartbreaking. There's divisiveness uh, in, in all kinds of uh, local churches, but even in denominations. The United Methodist Church, uh, of which we're a part, has been through a lot of big, nasty public conversations. There are challenges to the institution of the family. Lots of questions about uh, how the family sort I think, particular to Oklahoma. Uh, the the rates of opioid addiction are really high. The rates of incarceration of women are really high. And how does the family stay together and united in the face of such tremendous obstacles? And then also just a, a, the individual in the world today, it is hard to be a person. People are anxious, depressed. We're over-informed, we know about every calamity that is going on in the world at all times. I don't know if it is more complex than it was five years ago, but it at least feels like the world is more complex than it was five years ago. One One of my favorite books is called Failure of Nerve by Edwin Friedman. Friedman looks like a mad scientist. Find a video of Friedman, it's hilarious, and then read his book and you'll think, okay, that makes sense. But he wrote this incredible book called *Failure of Nerve*, and he describes the characteristics of what he calls a chronically anxious family system. And a family system could be a nation, it could be a church, it could be a family. It's it's groups of uh, networks of individuals who are you know together and united for some reason, and there are levels of stress that can hit such big time levels that the the stress becomes chronic. So chronically anxious family system. And uh, three attributes of a chronically anxious family system that I want to mention just quickly, and this may sound very familiar. Uh, The first one is reactivity. Reactivity. In a chronically anxious family system, it feels like the air is full of gas fumes, and if somebody lights a match, the place is going to explode. And so this happens at family gatherings when politicians' names are brought up. You're like, I knew my uncle was going to do that, and the whole place just blows to smithereens. A sign of a chronically anxious culture is hyper-reactivity. A sign of it is we're always interrupting each other. We're, We're building up our response before the other person has finished talking. There's no playfulness. There's no respect. Everything feels like life or death. It's reactive rather than responsive. This is a sign of a chronically anxious family system. Another sign of a chronically anxious family system is what Friedman calls blame displacement. It's everybody else's fault that such and such is the case. Nobody takes responsibility. Well, I only did that because so-and-so did that, or I wouldn't have done that if they had done their part. This is really because of them. When you correct someone, they put it back on everyone else except for them. There's limited focus on one's development, their own response to problems. And it seems to be true in a chronically anxious culture that the longer, the more you place emphasis on what happened and not what you're going to do about it, the longer you're going to stay stuck. Chronically anxious family systems give their energy to whining and complaining, not toward fixing and confronting problems. And the third problem that, that Friedman talks about in a chronically anxious family system is what he calls the quick-fix mentality. And the quick-fix mentality is you want to address symptoms rather than the root cause of problems. And you want to address symptoms because those symptoms hurt and they make you uncomfortable. And so when something makes you uncomfortable, you want whatever you can find to alleviate that suffering. Um, so uh, you know, if, you're in a, if you're in a toxic relationship, uh, you'll find little ways to put up with the acute pain of being in that relationship. But the reality is if you want to get unstuck, you don't need a quick fix, you need a long-term fix. And so you need to willingly endure a short-term period of acute pain in the interest of long-term health. And so if you're in a toxic or an abusive relationship, uh, the the pain of ending the relationship or the fear of ending the relationship is tremendous. Short-term acute pain of making the choices to put yourself in a place where you're protected uh, is in the interest of your long-term health. Or if you think about your own physical health, there may be choices that you need to make that feel very costly, but you willingly enter short-term acute pain, uh, changing our habits, changing our rhythms in the interest of our long-term health. But with a quick-fix mentality, we tend to choose habits and helpers that end the symptoms, that get rid of the short-term pain, rather than uh, the kinds of uh, approaches and leaders that are going to help us deal with our long-term issues. And as we transition to our our teaching this morning, uh, we could think about the book of Judges, which we discussed last week, as a great study in in, uh, the quick-fix mentality, Israel had a chronic issue of idolatry and rebellion against God. And rather than confronting the core issues, they instead cried out to God for deliverers. And so these judges would come. These judges would offer short-term relief from their long-term issue of idolatry leading to oppression. And those judges would come. They would address the symptom. They'd throw off the foreign armies, and then they would enjoy a temporary season of peace. Uh, but the pro- because the judges were only addressing the, the symptom, this, this foreign invader, and not the cause of the invasion, which was their idolatry, their against Yahweh, the cycle would continue again and again and again. They didn't want to repent and get rid of the idols because that was costly. That would, avoid, that would cost work and pain. They remained stuck in this cycle, and they would forever without some kind of disruptive change. And so amid the chaos of that period, where the judges, you know, one would come and go, they would have peace, and then they'd have war, they'd have peace, and then they'd have oppression. Amid the cycles of all of that period and the chaos, when it felt like God's side was stuck, or it felt like God's side was regressing, God began doing something new, Something quiet that the people didn't see even for decades after he'd begun the the process. God was responding and not reacting. God was taking responsibility and not blaming. God was providing a long-term solution and not just uh, entering into that quick-fix mentality. Wanted to address the core problems of the people. And this morning, we're going to look at how God worked then, to address the core problems that Israel was facing and, and give some, give, develop some imagination for how we might discern that God is working now in our time and in our culture and how we can be a part of it. Um, how many folks are, are attempting to go through the year of the Bible? <laughs> how many have given up already? Okay, you, can, you don't have to raise your hand. Um, this has been so much fun. I have read through the Bible before, like lots of different places and a couple of spurts all the way through. And I'm appreciating this time reading through the Bible just how magnificently the books flow from book to book. And so Judges, the book of Judges, ends like this. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. But then we turn to the next page, Ruth, and Ruth begins. In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land. And so if you've read the book of Judges, you know the tumult, you know the the anarchy of that season in the life of Israel. The book of Ruth comes to us in the middle of that season. And if you read it by itself, the the book of Ruth feels like it's four chapters that may feel a bit random. Like, what is this little relationship, you know, bunny trail that the Bible is going on? It feels a bit uh, out of place. It's sweet. It's amazing, really. The story of, of two women, Naomi who loses her sons and her husband, and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who, in spite of losing the family member that bound these women together, uh, uh, made a covenant with her, and though she was a Moabite, she went back to the land of Israel with her mother-in-law, Ruth. This great story. And you're turning the pages, and it feels like a kind of meat cute uh, story of, of Ruth ultimately meeting Boaz, whom she would marry. But the book ends in a way that suggests that there's a bigger picture perspective going on than one might have guessed at the very beginning. How Ruth at the very end marries this guy named Boaz, and then the book ends with a genealogy saying, Ruth married Boaz, and they had a kid named Obed, and Obed had a son named Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. And we see in the story, like, oh my goodness, all along, God was doing something. God used this woman, Ruth, a faithful and honorable woman who clung to her mother-in-law, though she no longer had, uh, like, legal bounds to do it. She clung to her mother-in-law, and God was using her as a tool, as one of the dominoes in the line to address the core of Israel's rebellion by raising up a king who would unite them and, and guide the people toward worship of Yahweh. It's a great story teeing up the monarchy that would come with David, but we see that that wasn't everything that God had prepared to do. The book of Samuel starts like this. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Ziphite, whose name was Elkanah. And if you opened up your Bible app or you Googled Ramathaim or Ziphite, that's the only time you're gonna see those terms in the Bible. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Ziphite, whose name was Elkanah, which starts this book again, similar to Ruth, in relative obscurity. Where on earth is Ramathaim? Doesn't show up elsewhere in the Bible. What does it mean to be a Ziphite? I'm not really sure. But there's a guy from Ramathaim who's a Ziphite, whatever that is, whose name is Elkanah, who's married to two women, one named Penina, who has has several children, and another woman named Hannah who's barren and who's heartbroken over her infertility. And Hannah is introduced to us in this long line of women in the Bible who struggle with infertility. And for as many people who struggle with that now, there's such comfort in seeing other heroines in the faith who are there. Hannah joins you know, the likes of Sarai, who becomes Sarah. At 90, has a child. You think about uh, 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 Leah and one of the, the wives of Jacob. Leah, who was infertile, and yet God opened her womb and caused her to have children. And then later in the New Testament, we meet Elizabeth, who had become the mother of John the Baptist. God does significant work in and through barren women. So one day Elkanah and his wife Hannah and Penina go to Shiloh where at that time the tabernacle was and they're, they're worshiping and Penina's being just a punk and making fun of Hannah and her situation and, and she's aggravated about it and the family offers the sacrifice but Hannah remains uh, near the tabernacle and she's, she's uh, praying, crying out to God but her, her words are not heard and uh, the priest whose name is Eli thinks she's drunk. Because people, prayer was an out loud thing. It was a public thing. And here's Hannah crying out to God from her heart. And he says, are you drunk? She says, I'm not drunk. I'm just pouring out my heart to God. And he says, well, may God give you what you have asked of him. And Hannah goes home. Uh, Elkanah and Hannah make love, and they conceive a child. And a year later, Samuel arrives. Samuel, whose name sounds like uh, God has heard my prayer. Samuel arrives on the scene. And Hannah had told God, if you give me a kid, I promise I'll give him right back to you. You can have him back. And so when Samuel reached the age of about two or three, his mother had had weaned him, she brought him back to the tabernacle to Eli and said, hey, I'm the lady who was crying out to God those years ago, and you said, may God answer your prayer. Well, he did. This is my answer right here. And she brings a sacrifice, and she tells Eli, I promised God if he gave me a kid, I'd give him right back to him. And so I'm bringing my boy, Sam, to come and, and be with you and to minister in the, Lord's, in the Lord's presence. And it says that the boy worshiped the Lord there. And as we turn the early pages of the book of 1 Samuel, we see this kid, Sam, who's contrasted to the kids of Eli the priest. Hophni and Phinehas are their names, and they're scoundrels. The Bible said they're scoundrels. They're sleeping with the the, the women who are serving in the tabernacle. They're uh, abusing the Lord's offering. People would come, and there was a a certain way that the priests were to take a share of God's offering, but they were just taking it themselves willy-nilly. They were uh, abusing uh, the offering, and Sam versus Hophni and Phinehas Are contrasted. Little Sam who's grown up in God's presence. Uh, We read again and again about what what Eli's sons are doing and how Eli is being passive and not correcting them. But meanwhile, this is there are these little verses here and there about Sam. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. Just like, you know, Catholic priests wear the clerical collar. Imagine a little kid walking around in a collar like he's dressed up for Halloween. A boy wearing a linen ephod. And then it says, meanwhile, this is again, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. This and that's happening, but little Sam is just getting taller and taller, growing up in the presence of the Lord. And then finally, it says, the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and then with people. He's just growing up, and there's this purity, this innocence about him. And then we get to 1 Samuel chapter 3, and and Samuel hears the voice of God. I loved how one artist depicted this, uh, this little boy Sam with his hand to his ear, uh, listening to the voice of God, and you can see in the shadow behind him uh, what would come, that he would be a judge, he would be a prophet over the people of Israel. In a time when the word of the Lord was rare... People couldn't, weren't hearing the voice of God. God speaks to this kid. Three times, Sam hears the voice of God, thinking it's Eli's voice, but finally Eli says, no, it's not me. God's calling your name. And the third time, Sam, Samuel says, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. When the word of the Lord was rare, God spoke to the little boy, Sam. And he set him apart and ultimately deposed the, the corrupt priesthood of Eli and his sons. And this is how the text ended. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet to the Lord. It's striking to me if, if you're in the middle of the period of the judges and you love God, you're feeling stuck You're feeling agitated. You're feeling fearful. Nothing is changing. Things are getting worse. They're more complex than they were years ago. And with every judge, man, maybe this one will be good, but he is worse than the last. With every judge, there's a sense of decline, decline, decline. And it probably feels to the people like God is doing nothing. But with the benefit of retrospect, we see how God was laying the groundwork for a quiet conspiracy. Uh, At the same time that Ruth and Boaz were having Obed, at the same time that Obed had Jesse, little Samuel was being born to his mother Hannah. At the same time that Jesse, who would become the father of King David, was being born, Samuel was being born, Samuel, who would ultimately introduce to Israel the monarchy and anoint their replacement king for the one that they haven't even asked for yet. It all started quite humbly. It all started in a way that the people didn't notice immediately. Through a Moabitess named Ruth, through a couple of Zephites from nobody knows where, God was beginning to do a work to respond to the crisis that the people were facing, using these no-names and their kids to introduce disruptive change. Disruptive change is, you know, you have the same problem and the same solution forever, and then something happens to totally change the narrative. God initiated a kind of disruptive change to confront the core of Israel's issues, their core problems that were leading to their suffering and their invasion by foreign armies, and lay the groundwork for the greatest work that God was going to do ultimately by sending the person of Jesus. Phyllis Tickle, who has the best name of anyone I've ever heard of, (laughs) wrote a book called The Great Emergence, How Christianity is Changing and Why. Tickle, isn't that great? In the book, she makes this, this rather audacious hypothesis about how God works in human history. And she made the case that every 500 years or so, God initiates this disruptive change to challenge the status quo, to confront the idolatry of his people, and, and to grab their attention. And so she starts with the ministry of Jesus, that with the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, this was a moment of great disruption where God was changing the narrative, where he was grabbing his people's attention. And he was doing something totally new. 500 years later, we have the fall of the Roman Empire and the invasion of the barbarians, which led to the evangelization of Europe. The gospel spread rapidly because of uh, the barbarian invasion and the fall of the Roman Empire. 500 years later, we had the split of the East and the Western Church. We, we developed the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. A great schism, a moment of great separation and disruption. 500 years after that, we had the Protestant Reformation where Martin Luther uh, nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church, and he he confronted the sale of indulgences and and many other things about the Catholic church, called the people back to Scripture, back to grace, back to faith, all for the glory of God. It was a great disruptive moment in in Christian history. But Phyllis Tickle's hypothesis is actually even better than than what she realized uh, when she put this together. Because this 500-year this thing has happened before. 500 years before the birth of Jesus, we have the exile of Judah to Babylon in 587. 500 years before that, we have the establishment of the Davidic dynasty that we're studying in First and Second Samuel. How God was uniting all of the tribes of Israel under, under the one flag of the people of Israel in the kingship of David. A dynasty that God said would be everlasting, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. 500 years before that, you've got Moses uh, leading the people out of slavery in Egypt, a moment of great disruption. And then 500 years before that, there's a a shepherd nomad named Abraham, and God says, go from your people, your country, and your family to a land that I will show you, and I'm going to use you through your family. I'm going to bless all of the nations of the world. From Abraham to Moses to David to exile to Jesus to the fall of the Roman Empire to the split of the East and the West to the Great Reformation and another 500 years brings us to today, to our complicated and our complex moment in human history with a world that is violent and corrupt with nations that are tribalistic and warring, a family that's distracted and complex, and the individual who is depressed and anxious and angry and lost, and to a church that much of the time feels impotent and divided. All of this could be a sign of our regression and our doom, that we've finally gotten so far off course that like God's just going to let this thing play out. Or... If we're paying attention to the way that God has worked throughout the ages, we pay attention to the patterns of God's past actions, it could be a sign of a great and a holy work of disruptive change by God that is to come and may already be in motion, the plans of which we've not even begun to discern. In a world of reactivity, God responds. In a world of blame, God takes responsibility. In a world addicted to quick fixes, God addresses core issues through disruptive change. And it seems to be the case that when God wants to lead a group of people through disruptive change, he takes them through five phases or five seasons in that process. The first phase is is ultimately repentance. It's, it's throwing down the idols. It's confessing our sin. It's acknowledging all the ways in which we've gone off course. Sometimes repentance happens in exile. It's the people saying, we sat by the rivers of Babylon and wept. The people who find themselves at rock bottom, recognizing the heights from which they have fallen. The first phase in this great disruptive change that God often leads a person or a group of people through is repentance, confession of sin. The second phase that God leads people through in disruptive change is rediscovery. Rediscovery is getting back to the roots. It's you know when you're in a relationship that goes awry and you can't even remember why you loved each other in the first place. And you start to tell the story again of how you fell in love. Tell You remember the behaviors you had toward each other in the beginning, the spirit of grace you had toward each other and, you know, relative to their failures. And you begin to rehearse again how we used to be. Sometimes walking through those steps of how it used to be changed things. Uh, The psalmist talks about when when I go off course, when my heart runs dry, I'll go back and do the things that I did at first. Often following a season of repentance, there's a moment of rediscovery when a group of people uh, hear the gospel as if for the first time and develop a fresh sense of wonder. Wow. God has worked magnificently among us. You can imagine being the people of Judah, you're living in foreign Babylon, and you're going back to the teachings of Moses and how Moses called the shot, that if you will obey me, I will bless you, I will fight your wars. You won't even have to lift a finger. I will do all of the heavy lifting. But if you you, uh, run from me, these curses are going to fall on you. You're going to find yourself in a foreign land, and there they are in the foreign land, remembering all that God had said. But also remembering how God said, if you return to me, then I'll show you mercy again. And they discover again the goodness of God's covenant, God's mercy. Often in a moment of great disruptive change, we go through repentance and that leads to a rediscovery, discovering as if again the gospel and the good news. This leads us into the third phase, which is a phase of reorientation, where we begin to see the world th- from God's perspective. We're undoing the way that we previously saw things, and we're beginning to have a reorientation of our vision. sounds like Paul in Romans 12. Don't be conformed anymore to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve God's perfect will. After repentance and this this rediscovery of the gospel, there's a reorientation. Oh, I saw the whole world this way, but through the eyes of the kingdom of God, it's totally different. Different. There's a reorientation that happens, fresh eyes, which leads us to fresh engagement. This, this, the fourth phase in this season of disruptive change is re-engagement, re-enlisting and joining God and his mission in the world, having a sense of renewed purpose. Where there are wrongs as a citizen of the kingdom of God, confronting those wrongs. Where there's confusion as a citizen of the kingdom of God and part of the church, which Paul says is the pillar and foundation of truth, we bring light and we bring hope and we bring truth, we bring security. We re-enlist in the mission and we re-engage in the world. Where there's a world of depression and darkness and hatred, we shine, we shine the love of Jesus into dark places. And then finally, these seasons of great disruption lead to renewal. We're having repented, having having recovered a vision of the gospel, being reoriented in the way that we see the world, and reengaging in God's mission. We begin to see fruit emerge where there was not fruit. Hope emerge where there was not hope. We're seeing people uh, come to Jesus. We're seeing transformation. We're seeing joy. We're seeing growth. We're seeing spiritual awakening. And again and again, throughout human history, God demonstrates this desire for disruptive change, to grab people's attention, to call them to repentance, and to lead them, lead us through a process that will ultimately lead to renewal. This happens at a a macro level. We saw that by looking at some of those great epochs of history that Tickle talked about, and even before before the time that she put on her timeline. But it also happens on a micro level of an individual. And I love you know, hearing the stories in our apprentice groups and in our church of how this is beginning to happen in our church, where individuals who had been the prodigal son or the prodigal daughter, daughter and had run as far from God as they possibly can found themselves shaken to the core in a moment of disruption and spiritual awakening in their own lives. Where having hit rock bottom or, or feeling purposeless or stale in life, God calls them home and they repent. And some, for the first time, discover the good news of the gospel and all that's offered in the person of Jesus Christ, and others rediscovering it as if for the first time, leading them to a reorientation of the way that they see the world, reengagement on God's terms and an experience of deep renewal in their own lives, a desire to be different, to, to, to go to the beat of a different drummer. It happens on the macro level, but it's also happening on the micro level, even in our church and in the city of Tulsa. And that process is something that we should pray would happen again and again and again. That that process would even be accelerated in the lives of our friends and our neighbors and the people that we love. I think as a culture, if we were to think about where we are in this process, think we're at the beginning of a new season of disruptive change by God. When it feels like the tectonic plates of, of our nation and our culture and our world and our families and many individuals sense it as well, the church, when all these tectonic plates are shifting, it feels like God is beginning to do a disruptive work. And we should remember as God does this, as he's worked in the past to work through history, he often starts in very humble situations with destitute women like Ruth and Naomi and barren couples like Hannah and Elkanah from a town that no one's ever heard of, belonging to a people group that no one's ever heard of. As we think about how God might be working right now in this season of transition, as we're in that 500-year window of transition, and we're thinking about how God might work humbly and unexpectedly, I think, well, he's probably not going to start this work in the United States. If it's going to start humbly and it's going to start in an unexpected place, it's probably going to come from the global south in South America and in Africa where where the church is exploding and the global south is finding its voice on the stage of leadership in all of the world. One of my pastor heroes is a guy named John Tyson. And I've been following Tyson on Twitter and in books and stuff for years, and he's really nurtured my love of God and my, my desire to church plant and probably five years ago, Tyson tweeted this. It's a picture of a weed growing in a crack in the sidewalk in New York City. He said, Our church plant summed up in one image Hashtag mustard seed. Do not despise the day of small beginnings. Jesus said the kingdom of God was like a mustard seed, which was small, insignificant, could be blown over by the wind, and yet it, when it grows and it puts down root, puts down root, it becomes something that is strong and significant, something that the birds can come and perch in its branches. And for all of us who are following Jesus, there's an invitation. Considering the way that God has worked through history, and, and considering how God might be working now. To discern the humble beginnings, the rumblings, the aches, the angst of what God is doing in our world right now. And how those little mustard seeds might be give, attended to and cultivated. They might put down roots. They might put up shoots and bear fruit for the kingdom of God ultimately. The invitation for us is to discern the small and the insignificant ways, even in our own hearts, that God might be birthing something new. Maybe it's through just a deep sense of restlessness or being pissed off about how things are. Maybe it starts with with those rumblings of discontent, and God wants to cause those rumblings of discontent to turn into a deep hunger and to feel those pangs and to cause them to cry out for God to move and to do something great and to do something new. In In the lives of the individuals that we care for, our sons and daughters, our brothers and sisters, our coworkers, our friends, who deeply need to hit rock bottom and gain the perspective from God's point of view about where they are and what they need crying out to God on behalf of these individuals for ourselves who have grown hungry and discontent with our experience of church and the Spirit and God's world as it is, and also to cry out on behalf of nations and our world that we might experience the kind of renewal and re-engagement and refocusing that God wants to bring, but he needs to do it through a kind of disruptive change. Jesus always in his parables, often in his parables, say with, hey, whoever has ears to hear Listen to what the Spirit is saying. And when Jesus spoke to the churches through the Apostle John and the book of Revelation, whoever has ears to hear what the Spirit is saying, listen. So I would invite you this morning to listen, to pay attention, to consider, to think what mustard seeds of kingdom activity God has planted in your life. Maybe that's starting out as a deep conviction of sin. Or maybe it's an awareness of idolatry in your life where you've prioritized something or someone above God, and God is saying, that is disordered. I want to do something about that. Maybe it's a mustard seed of compassion or mercy for the people who don't know him. Maybe it's a broken heart for kids in the foster care situation in in the state of Oklahoma like we've been talking about. Where is that mustard seed of activity that God is doing in your life? And as the people of Cornerstone, and more importantly, the people of Christ's church, how can we discern what God wants to do among us? What new and good and precious uh, gift he's trying to bring about through disruptive change? God said to the people of Judah in exile, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm about to do something in your day that you would not believe even if you were told. As we're on the hinge of that next 500-year epoch, what new thing that is unbelievable to us might God be doing? How can we pay attention to it? And how can we hop on and join in? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray for all of us in this room. And for those who are here who are uh, the prodigal or who have been lost in sin, For those who have been deeply discontented with their experience of their relationship with you, quite frankly, they may just be bored. For those of us who grow restless with our experience of church, who who are tired of showing up and going through the motions on Sunday morning and finding that it has ultimately no bearing on the way that we live Monday through Saturday. For For all of us who are hungry, for thirsty, for those of us who are agitated and annoyed with the current state of things, Pray, Lord Jesus, that you would uh, cause those mustard seeds to germinate and to grow. To cause us uh, to to go through those phases of beginning with deep repentance. Repentance for our own sins. Think of Nehemiah, repenting on behalf of his people. Forgive us, Lord Jesus, for all the ways in which we've set up idols in opposition to you. All the ways in which we've identified agendas, agendas that we think you should follow and we should be getting in line behind you. Remember the angel standing before Joshua before they invaded the land. He said, are you for us or for our enemies? He said, neither am for the Lord. <laughs> May we be for the Lord. When Jesus says we repent, I pray that you would g- give us a fresh experience of the gospel, that you cause our hearts to break and our minds to be renewed as we discover as if for the first time what it means that you so love the world that you gave your son And the knowledge of what you've done for your son would break our hearts and tenderize us and move us toward reorientation and reengagement of the world, a hunger to see people who are lost to be found, the blind to see, the hungry to be satisfied and filled with good things. Would you do such a work in us that our hearts break for the world as we experience it so that we want to join you in the renewal of all things? We thank you, Lord Jesus, that that in our brokenness, you continue to to send your son, Jesus, who sits at at your right hand and intercedes for us. Jesus, who would come as the ultimate judge, the ultimate prophet, the ultimate king, uh, the ultimate deliverer, the one who through his death and resurrection and ascension would establish for us an eternal priesthood, a God, a member of the Godhood who is always interceding for us. And thank you that even now, Lord Jesus, you intercede, your spirit is groaning on our behalf when we don't know how to pray for ourselves. And now as we come to the table, may that same Jesus who is alive in the presence of the Father send the spirit and make this real, his love for us and his love for the world, real in our lives right now in this time. Jesus, thank you that you do love us. Thank you that you are birthing a new creation. Thank you that in the small and the insignificant and the personal and the micro and the macro, you are at work. You are sovereign. You are good. You are taking responsibility. You are responding and you are addressing the core of our deepest need, which is to be united with you and with each other. pray all of this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.